I'm Gina Asher, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and musicians, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Jerry Slocum, avid collector of mechanical puzzles who, through his research and writing, has become an expert on these art forms that have intrigued humankind for centuries. In 2006, Slocum began transferring his vast collection of 30,000 puzzles to the Indiana University Lilly Library, not just for safekeeping, but also to make the puzzles available to anyone curious enough to stroll in to see them. Welcome, Jerry Slocum. Thank you very much. Mechanical puzzles, for our listeners' benefit, are the kind that must be manipulated to untangle, reorder, or achieve some kind of goal. I guess listeners could think of the Rubik's Cube as an example of some of the puzzles. Your love affair with mechanical puzzles began early on in what sounds like a chance occurrence. Tell us about your first one. Well, the first one that I remember was brought to me by my parents when they took a trip to New York City in 1939 to attend the World's Fair at that time. And my father tended to bring puzzles back home uh, to me instead of other kinds of toys. He was an engineer. He worked in the Edison Company during the Depression. He had a job the whole time. And the puzzles he brought back intrigued me, even as quite a young child of less than eight years old. And I got more and more interested as I uh, as he brought others to me until I finally got an allowance, and then <laughs> I started to buy my own puzzles. Do you remember what that first one was that he brought back? Uh, I'm not positive. It it could well have been the theme of the the New York World's Fair of 1939, the Trilon and the Parisphere buildings. And in miniature, they were put together to make a interlocking puzzle that was a, a sphere, a small sphere, about a half inch uh, in diameter, representing the perisphere, and then a, a long piece that was uh, struck through it, uh, which was the trilon. And the puzzle was to take these apart and then put them back together. <laughs> so fast forward several decades. Uh, you're now the author of several books about puzzles and people's attractions to puzzles, including a book about the 15 puzzle, which we'll have you describe in a few minutes. That was the one that precipitated a puzzle mania across America in the 1880s. And you've also looked closely at tangrams, the geometric kind that you can take apart and reassemble. Evidently, then, humankind has always been intrigued by puzzles. What do you think the appeal is? Well, I've looked back in time as early as we have been able to identify puzzles. Archimedes wrote about a puzzle in a letter in uh, the second or third century. And even before that, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there are puzzle vessels where the puzzle is how to drink out of the vessel without spilling or how to fill the puzzle. In the case where the where you're trying to fill the puzzle, it's a gourd-shaped uh, vessel. And in order to fill it, you have to turn it upside down and fill it through the bottom, which is not intuitive. So is it um, the mystery behind it that's intriguing to people? Well, in my own case, and I think it's probably representative of the general population, I had a great feeling of satisfaction by solving it. It, it was an accomplishment. And 
I think the the most the most I felt that was when I solved a puzzle when I was about 10 years old, and it was called the Rings of Seven. It had seven uh, circular rings held by a piece of, each one held by a piece of wire to a bar, and then it had another piece that uh, went through the the circles, and the object was to remove the piece with the circles on it from the bar. And it was not like any other puzzle that I'd ever tried because uh, you couldn't just do one or two moves to, to remove it. You had to remove all seven. And as soon as you removed the first one, the, the second one wouldn't come off. <laughs> and what you had to do is you had to remove the actually the first two and put one back on and take two off and put them back on. So you had to alternate. You had to figure out a system of logic in order to solve it. And it, when I solved that, it was just a, a great feeling of elation, satisfaction, and achievement. And I found myself the only one that could solve that puzzle. My sister couldn't solve it. My father couldn't solve it. And no one else in the neighborhood could solve it. So I was, uh, it really gave me a, a great uh, feeling of accomplishment. In your um, work life, you went into the aerospace industry, and I can see where there would be some problem-solving and some success after wrestling with problems. Was that a um, puzzle experience? Tell us a little about that kind of work. Yes, it it, it was, and I found that uh, when I went to college, I was enrolled in engineering physics at the University of Illinois, and after the first elective class in experimental psychology as a sophomore, uh, the teacher was a pilot from World War II who had a lot of experience in flying uh, during the war and then got his Ph.D. in psychology. Uh, and he had experiences of analyzing planes where the pilot made a mistake and uh, the plane crashed. Uh, there were two areas of the cockpit that were primarily responsible for that. One was the two levers that the pilot uses, one to raise the landing gear and the other to lower the flaps, which he does on landing to slow the airplane down. And these two controls were right next to one another. And very often, the pilot would raise the landing gear instead of lowering the oh flaps and would, and would crash the airplane. And the other one was reading the altitude of the airplane. It was a three-pointed altimeter, and it was very easy to make a mistake of your altitude by a 1,000 feet. And many planes ran into uh, mountaintops. And I was so intrigued with this that I ended up getting a minor in psychology in addition to my engineering degree. And then I applied that to the design of cockpits for a military airplane. And that was uh, basically my career, as to how to make the pilot's job easier. And the pilot of a military fighter is very, very busy. One man in the airplane, he has navigation. He needs to find out if, if other airplanes of the enemy is around. Uh, he needs to uh, look through, look at the radar system. Uh, he has to, to be concerned about what the, what the, uh, the ground is telling him and all while flying this airplane. And so to make his job easier was basically my task for about uh, 30 years. Mm -hmm. 
But you were still interested in puzzles along the way. Yes, I was. You started a puzzle party in 1978 that's grown to be an international event. Um, You've also, along the way, you wrote more than 10 books on puzzles. Uh, One of those was the first to include all types of mechanical puzzles with hundreds of illustrations. Um, You've become a curator, a guest curator, at several exhibits displaying puzzles. And you started the Slocum Puzzle Foundation in 1993. A lot of this at your California home, where I understand you built a two-story puzzle museum in your backyard. So puzzles were never far from your thinking, even when you were designing those cockpits. Tell us about how you grew this avocation while you were still working and still solving other problems. Well, we were able to make some major improvements in the cockpit in the ability of the pilot to see the information from his radar system. Uh, When I arrived, why the pilot had to watch a a tube uh, with a dim phosphor, uh, and he had to continue to watch it to see if there were er any airplanes around him. And it was he had to put his head in a hood in order to keep the light out. So one of the first things that we did was to provide a a display that was very, very bright and would, any time he glanced at it, he could see the information from the radar. And that was so popular uh, around the world that there was a lot of other companies like the Swedish Air Force uh, and, the, and, and other air forces like the Swedish Air Force that were very interested in it. So I had an opportunity to fly uh, to many other countries as part of my job. And I was able to often take some extra days or an extra week when I went to Sweden or London or various other parts of the world and look for antique puzzles. And London is the mother load of antique puzzles. Uh, And so I was able in the early days to uh, acquire a a very large collection of very high-quality antique puzzles so that the two, the occupation and the hobby worked very well together from a travel point of view. And I found that the people in my office were very, very interested in the puzzles. I would bring them in, and uh, there was a lot of very brainy people. And some of them would make notes of the puzzle and come back the next day and ask me to hand it to them, and they would solve it because they'd figured it out analytically and uh, would take out their piece of paper and, and, uh, and solve it without ever having actually tried the physical puzzle. What about the books? Um, you started writing those several years ago as well. Uh, they, they reflect a lot of research. They're not just casual, look at these interesting puzzles I've collected. You did a lot of scholarly work to find out the provenance and the history of these puzzles. Well, the, the thing that drove me to being very interested in the history is as I read various books that were available from around the world about, for example, the Tangram, the Chinese puzzle, it's also called, I found there was major discrepancies. Some books would say it was invented in Germany uh, at one period of time, and others would say it came from England, and others would say it came from China. And uh, there was one of the early books from from England mentioned that the this puzzle was Napoleon's favorite, and he was on the island of St. Helena at that point in the in the early 1800s. 
And then I read many other uh, books and, and Martin Gardner's columns, and Martin Gardner felt that that, that point was put into the book just to sell it because Napoleon was such a controversial character at that point. So there was all these things that I couldn't resolve in my own mind as to what the truth really was. So I went on a period of 10 years of research and went to China twice and to all the major libraries in Europe uh, while I was traveling on my business sometimes and was able to, to resolve all of these issues, virtually all of them, and uh, put together what I thought was the definitive book on the history of the Tangram. And then that led me down the path for other puzzles that were very popular, were puzzle crazes, but where there was a lot of controversial information, conflicting information that uh, who invented it, uh, when. And so I uh, did some, some uh, quite careful research on several other puzzles uh, and wrote books about them as well. Talk about some of those things that you unearthed that were um, surprising or shocking, some of the, the lore that you kind of turned on its ear because of your research. Well, you mentioned the 15 puzzle, and uh, that is a puzzle that has uh, square blocks in a tray, a square tray, and there's four rows of four blocks each, which makes 16. You, you have a, a number, a sequential number from one to 15 on 15 of the blocks, and you take the 16th one out. Then you shuffle up the blocks, uh, turn it over, and then you put the blocks back in in a random fashion. And the object of the puzzle then is to slide the pieces around so they're back in the original order, in numerical order. Well, it turns out that mathematically, half of the time that you do that the arrangement of the pieces is such that it's mathematically impossible to solve the puzzle. I was just thrilled when I read about that. And that was the, big, the second largest puzzle craze in the history of, of uh, the Western world. And so I, there, there was a lot of conflicting information on who invented it. Uh, Sam Lloyd was America's most famous inventor, and he was at the height of his, of his uh, fame uh, during 1880 when this puzzle came out. So I was intrigued to find out the truth about who invented it and what happened during that period. And uh, I wrote a book about it that uh, described an unbelievable scene during the period that that, that, that puzzle was popular. Uh, the fact that people could solve at one time and not solve at the other, and they had no idea why, was just caused uh, an enormous uh, thirst for the the answer. And it was so popular that there were 10 or 15 songs written about it. It was used in Broadway plays and, and theater. Uh, and uh, it was there were two editorials in the New York Times about it. It was in every newspaper, and it was just a huge craze uh, in 1880. You said that was the second one. What was the the first? The, the most Tangram popular? was the first, and it started in 1813 when a book was written in China that showed the the seven pieces that you have to arrange to a, a set of silhouettes or diagrams. You have to put the seven pieces so they represent a running person or an animal or a geometric figure that's the shape of which is given to you. So that became popular 
uh, from that first book in China. Uh, but that book was only printed in very limited number, and we only know of one copy that exists today. Uh, but two years later, in 1815, they made a big publishing run, and those books were sent from China to uh, Europe, uh, to England, and to the United States. And that's what started that puzzle craze, uh, which uh, lasted for about a year. You can kind of see some of these in in recent um, forms of puzzles. For example, when you talk about tangrams and when I went to see them at the Lilly Library, um, they are very much an interlocking, flat arrangement that either fits or it doesn't. And I think of some of the children's puzzles that are like that. And the 15 puzzle reminded me a little of the Sudoku where you want to add up sometimes and get a certain number at the each level. Um, do you see that too, that, that puzzles, maybe there aren't any new ones, that, that we're just reconfiguring existing puzzles? Well, yes. Uh, and in addition, the Tangram and the 15 puzzle are still very, very popular today. And they have been in production and available continuously since they first came out and were a puzzle craze. And the Tangram has been used in schools uh, since it was since since 1825, it was has been used in schools and still is. Uh, the 15 puzzle has not been used in schools so much, but there have been many sort of mini uh, crazes after that when some new version of it came out in plastic or came out in an attractive form. So those those puzzles are classics that just uh, once they were invented, they're going to live forever. Uh, people just just love the the challenge and the satisfaction and thrill of solving them. The aha moment. The aha moment's <laughs> right. So those are two kinds. One of the other things that you've done um, is to sort of create a taxonomy, a way of categorizing the different kinds of puzzles that there are. Um, tell us a little about some other forms besides the tangram and the fifteen puzzle. The tangram and fifteen are each. Uh, different types of puzzles. The taxonomy that I put together uh, back in the 1970s classifies puzzles mostly by what it is that you're supposed to do to it. For example, the the tangram is a put-together puzzle. The, the whole object is to form these silhouette figures. Taking it apart is trivial. You just, you just uh, mess it up with your hand. So it's a put-together puzzle. Uh, another, uh, the 15 puzzle, however, is a sequential movement puzzle. You have to do a series of moves in a certain order toward a certain result according to some rules. And that applies to not only the 15 puzzle, but another puzzle that's in the same category is the Rubik's Cube. It's a sequential movement where you have an end goal and you have a series of moves to get to that end goal. In addition to that, there's another category of puzzles that you have to take apart or you have to find a secret compartment in them. And those are very, very popular. And they include things like trick locks, where when you look at the lock, you can't figure out where to put the key because the keyhole is hidden or where you have to push certain buttons or you have to do things in a certain order. In some cases, you have to solve as many as 10 different puzzles to get the key in. And, and to uh, solve and to open the lock. And there are puzzle knives in that same category where the puzzle is to open it. 
you can't open it in the normal way. You have to do something different. And there's other puzzle categories, such as disentanglement puzzles that have are made of pieces of wire, where you have to take them apart and put it together, or, or wire and string, uh, and you have to disentangle them, in other words. Uh, there's also a category called impossible puzzles. <laughs> and this is, this is a fascinating one, where you have an object, and the puzzle is, how was this made? Or how would you make it? Probably the most famous in that category is a Coca-Cola bottle that has had two holes drilled in the side, and through the holes is a piece of wood, an arrow. And the, the, the tail of the arrow and the head of the arrow are much too big to go through the hole. And yet you're told no glue was used. It's one piece of wood, and the glass is one piece of glass. So how would anybody make that? That's a, a very interesting category. And we have another one, which is folding puzzles, where you try to fold a, a flat piece of paper to find the, the face of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or some, somebody else. Uh, a, a, another one would be dexterity puzzles, where you try to roll balls to put them in holes or stand a, uh, an egg on its, uh, on its end or, uh, or other categories of that type. So there's altogether 10 different uh, types of puzzle in my taxonomy. And reflected in your collection, too? Yes. And my books are all organized in accordance with that, too. So all the put-together puzzles are first, and then there's the take-apart puzzles and the disentanglement and the interlocking puzzles and so forth. And uh, in my museum, they're all organized the same way. And in the Lilly Library, they're organized the same way. Now, when you talk about your museum, you're talking about the one on your property? Yes. Which also has, when you're talking about the uh, impossible to figure out how to get into, I hear that you have three doors to that museum and people have to figure out how to get in. That's correct. Three puzzle doors. One is the door to get into the building itself. It's a two-story building behind my house. And on the, the, the door to get into the building... The, the predominant thing that you see when you come up that is unusual is there is a six-piece burr, a six-piece interlocking puzzles that puzzle that has like a three-dimensional cross, two pieces uh, in one direction, another two pieces orthogonal to them, and the third set of two pieces orthogonal to the other two. So it's a three-dimensional cross, and it's it, it looks like it's glued to the to the center of the door. And in order to open the door, and I do have a burglar alarm system, <laughs> uh, you have to uh, slide the key piece in the burr to the side before the door will open. And then when you get inside, there's a, another puzzle door to get into the first floor where I have my office and, and we have a Murphy bed for guests and uh, so forth. Uh, and in that case, uh, it's a lot more difficult when you look. There's a hasp on the, on the door with a padlock through the hasp. And the padlock is a puzzle padlock. So there's no keyhole that's obvious. So the first thing it looks like you need to do is to find the keyhole. And, and to do that, you have to take the, the key and actually put it into the decoration of the lock and turn it. 
and then the, the flap that's over the keyhole opens, and you can put the key in. But to open the lock, there's a bar on the back you have to turn also that, that looks like it's rigid and welded, but it isn't, and you, have, and you have to take that. And once you do those two things and you turn the key in the right way, then you can take the, the lock off. Uh, and as soon as you take the lock off and you try to open the door, it still doesn't open. <laughs> and in fact, this lock and this hasp actually have nothing to do with opening the door. They're just a misdirection, as a, a magician herring. would say. <laughs> and they, uh, in order to open the door, you actually push on the center of the door while you're rotating the knob, and it opens. But not the whole door, just 80% of it, the part that's attached to the hasp is rigidly attached, and it never opens. So just the just the, uh, a panel of the door opens. So if people get through the first two doors, what is the third one like? Well, you walk upstairs to the second floor, and in the center of the door is half of a, of a wooden version of a coffee cup. And it has two what look like sugar pieces and a spoon, but it's sliced in half, so you, you, you can't see half of it because it looks like it's through the door. And so that attracts everybody, and they, they pick up the two pieces of white uh, wood that uh, look like sugar, and they uh, push the handle and so forth. But in fact, it has nothing to do with opening the door. It's just to, to distract their attention. And in fact, to open the door, uh, you go to the, to the handle. There's a lever handle, which is instead of a round knob, and instead of pushing it down, which it looks like you should do, you have to push the lever up. You have to pull it up, rotate it up. And then you have to push on what you think is the hinge side of the door so that the hinge side of the door opens and the lock side of the door is really the hinge side. So uh, that one is really not too difficult, but uh, still people have a lot of fun with these doors. Where did you get these? Or did you devise these? No, they were in. They were invented and and built by a man from Japan, Akio Kamei, who is a remarkable person who has revolutionized secret opening boxes, and he now has ten people working for him, making very very interesting and unusual secret opening boxes in Japan. And he also makes puzzle furniture with secret compartments in it. And he sent me a videotape of an exhibition that he had of his furniture and his puzzles. And in it, he had a puzzle door. And it was the same door as the one, the third one that I talked about with the lever where the hinges are on the opposite side that you expect. And I asked him if I could buy the mechanism and put it into my building because we were going to have a puzzle party in Los Angeles, and I wanted to have a puzzle door. And he wrote back and said, no, we can't. I can't do that. He says, but I'll tell you what. I'll come over there, and I'll design three doors for you, and I'll make them. So he came over. He worked out the design that uh, for each of the doors, did all the measurements, went back to Japan, had all the parts made, and came back and installed them. So that was the origin of those three doors, by a, a designed, invented, and made by Akio Kamei. That's wonderful. We're talking to puzzle collector Jerry Slocum, and we'll go out for our break with some music from Hoosier Hoagie Carmichael.
We're talking with puzzle collector and expert Jerry Slocum, who has amassed a collection of mechanical puzzles of all types and from all periods that he's given to the Indiana University Lilly Library to display and preserve. His research and collecting have given Slocum a broad view of puzzles' cultural and educational aspects. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You mentioned earlier Sam Lloyd, a puzzle inventor of a century ago, and he said he considered puzzles from an educational standpoint, and you've alluded to some of that too. Lloyd wrote, They sharpen the wits, clear fog and cobwebs from the brain, and school the mind to concentrate properly. I'm guessing that you'd agree with this, as would anyone who finds working puzzles from mechanical to crosswords to be brain exercise. What are your favorites to unwind with? I like the secret opening boxes, I think, uh, is a general category. When I get one in the mail from Japan, I can hardly wait to open it, and then I can hardly put it down until I have it solved. They just intrigue me so much. So in a general case, uh, those are my favorites. But I mentioned earlier my experience with the Chinese rings puzzle, the Ring of Seven, which really got me so enthusiastic about puzzles when I was a very young person. And so that still is one of my favorite uh, puzzles, the Chinese rings puzzle. What stumps you? Well, uh, or, or have you been stumped? Maybe I maybe have not. been stumped. Oh yes, I've <laughs> been stumped sometimes for uh, a limited period of time, like uh, a month or a year, uh, and sometimes I've not solved the puzzle at all, and I've asked for the solution. Not very oh, often, but now. occasionally I do. <laughs> How do you go about asking for the solution? Well, I talk to the inventor. Uh, I know most of them. And uh, a lot of the puzzles now that are on the market have been invented by people that come to our puzzle party. We have a lot of puzzle designers that are very good, including people from 25 countries. And uh, so uh, I, uh, I know a lot of the inventors and the manufacturers of them. Now, that's the puzzle party you started 30 years ago that's yes. blossomed into this international annual event. That's correct. We started having 11 people in my living room, and in 1978, I invited about 20 people that I had known from around the world, and uh, 11 of them came. And at the end of the one-day puzzle party we had, I asked people if they'd like to do it again, and they all said yes. So we now are having our 32nd international puzzle party. We have them in rotating uh, from the United States, and then the next year we go to Japan or Asia or Australia, and then the third year we go to Europe, and then we repeat this. And we've been doing that now for uh, 25 years. So we have a lot of people that are very enthusiastic. They plan their whole year around coming to this. The parties last for four or five days, and then often we have uh, supplementary trips that might take another week. You have a wife, children, grandchildren. How how involved are they in this avocation of yours? Are they 
uh, puzzle fanatics as well? Do they go on the trips with you, or do they roll their eyes and say, oh, Jerry's at it again? Well, I'm very, very fortunate because both of my sons, uh, one is a professor of education at Utah State University, and the other is a is a senior engineer in the aerospace industry. They both love puzzles, and they're very good at solving them. Sometimes they beat me. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's that's very rewarding. And I have uh, three, uh, four grandchildren, and all of them are interested in puzzles, and some of them are also very good. I'd say three of the four are really quite good at solving them. So the last few international puzzle parties, uh, we've had almost all of the family attend. Uh, As have other guests, I'm sure. Well, we have about 400 people Mm -hmm. attend the the party. They're by invitation only, and you must be a very serious puzzle collector to be added to the invitation Mm -hmm. list. Mm -hmm. You and I were at the Slocum Room at the Lilly Library. And sure enough, we spotted four or five people trying their hands quite literally at the puzzles on display there. Uh, we saw a young girl who looked like maybe she was five or six trying to work, I believe I'd call it a tangram puzzle. And a couple of, shall we say, older guys working on some intertwined loops and examining that Coke bottle with the arrow that you mentioned earlier. One of your goals for uh, giving the collection to the care and feeding of the Lilly Library was to make them accessible to people. It's the world's largest collection of mechanical puzzles, 30,000 puzzles, 4,000 books. There's an online database, so if any listeners want to see some of these puzzles, you can log on to the Indiana University Lilly Library website and see some of them. But you're not an alumnus of IU. You didn't have any connections to the Lilly Library. How did you come to give your collection to the Lilly? Well, since my collection is so huge, I knew that although my kids and grandkids are are very active and very and and avid puzzle solvers, they're not collectors of the magnitude that the puzzle collection is. They have some, uh, all have some in their their rooms at college, and they have uh, some at home, uh, but they may have a hundred or, or so. They don't have thousands of them like I do. And so I recognized that uh, I really wanted to have to preserve my collection intact and all of the research files that I've uh, accumulated in doing research for all of these books I've written and all my library. I'd like to keep them all together. And so as I was working on the uh, research for the Tangram book, which involved going to all the major libraries in the United States and Europe, I made notes of each institution, each museum and each library about how I was treated as a researcher. Were the things made available to me? And how were the things treated? Were they made available to me in a controlled way so that it prevented defacing or or stealing any of the items. And I also then talked with uh, professional book dealers in New York about various institutions and what they uh, what their impression was of institutions that they dealt with. And both my own observations and uh, the inputs I got from others, uh, the Lilly Library was the top of the list. It was the prime pick. So I came here and uh, worked out with the uh, director, uh, Bill Cagle, uh, 
a contract uh, where I agreed to give all of my puzzles and uh, books and files to the uh, Lilly Library, and in exchange, they agreed to have a display of them for the public permanently. And this is ext- was extremely important to me. There were other institutions that would have liked to have my collection, but they couldn't meet all my requirements, particularly the one of having a permanent display. The reason that's so important that if you go to a library, you can find a book through an author or a keyword or the name of the book. When you come to find a puzzle, they don't have common names. Nobody knows who the inventors are. And so how do you find it? Well, you find it with your eyes. So you have to have visually all the different kinds of puzzles in order to find what you're interested in. And then you need a database where there's pictures of all the other ones that are, there's no, not a room to display 30,000 puzzles, but there's room to display many of each type of puzzle, each of the 10 categories that I mentioned earlier. And so they're on a, a wall of a large room and in a permanent display. The pieces themselves are rotated so that it's not always the same. But it gives you a very good idea of the breadth and depth of each of these 10 categories. And then there's a database of, the re- of all of the puzzles, all 30,000, so you can see pictures of them. And you can choose a type or you can choose a manufacturer. You can choose uh, – so you, you can find what you're looking for through a combination of the display and the computer database. And if you're a casual visitor, you can have – 10 or 15 minutes of fun trying to figure some of them out. Yes. I've, I've done uh, 10 or 15 ex- exhibitions in various museums uh, around the world, including Japan and Canada and the United States. And uh, I felt from the beginning it was very important to not just have people see these in display cases, see the puzzles in display cases, the beautiful antique puzzles, but they can't really understand much about the puzzle unless they try to solve it. So having hands-on puzzles, again, across all of these different types was very important to me. And not only the puzzle, but a little booklet that says, where do you start? If somebody else has messed it up, you can put it back. And then what is the task you're to do? And then if you can open the booklet, if you get frustrated or you're not familiar with, with the first move, you can get a hint. There's a hint page. Mm -hmm. And then if you need another hint, you can get another hint. And then if you are really frustrated, you can see the solution. And by this means, then you can have a a, a positive experience in trying to solve puzzles and go away to another puzzle or at another time uh, enthusiastic to try it again. And and pretty soon you're an avid puzzle collector. (laughs) Who else is using the collection there? It sounds as if uh, researchers, and you yourself are one, are also tapping into the collection to do research on maybe one of those 10 types or a certain puzzle designer's work. Yes. uh, Here at Indiana, the puzzles have been used in many classes, and they've been here now for five years. Not all of them, but uh, I'm gradually adding more every year, but... Uh, they've had the the room has been open and there's they've been on display and there's been a lot of puzzles here for five years, and during that period, uh, 
quite a number of different classes have met in the room and used the puzzles in various ways, uh, everything from visualizing three-dimensional graphics uh, to art history. And uh, actually, in art history, uh, a professor is use, not only using them, but he's doing research on the interlocking puzzle, the six-piece burr that I mentioned earlier, the one that's on the front of the door of my puzzle uh, museum. The earliest illustration we have of this kind of puzzle is in a, an engraving by Leclerc, a French artist in, and scientist in uh, 1698. And he is doing research on where that artist may have learned about that. So art history is involved. He's also uh, using it uh, in his classes, several of his classes. Uh, so my goal of having it here was to have it used by the faculty uh, in their classes and used by the public. And the public has, has been overwhelmingly enthusiastic about it. We have a guest book that's practically full already. And uh, there's uh, a lot of school children that come here from the local communities. Uh, people fly in from all over the world to the Lily, and many, many of them uh, spend quite a bit of time uh, in the Slocum Room with all of the puzzles. You've been on um, television, different talk shows, a lot of newspaper articles written about you and your collection. It's still perceived by some people to be sort of a parlor game. Do you spend time um, working with reporters, working on talk show hosts to sort of make it something beyond a parlor game? Or is a parlor game fine to intrigue someone and you go from there? Well, game a, a game could include puzzle. It could be a broad category. And I have had a uh, really a great deal of satisfaction by writing books which have been uh, distributed all over the world in many different languages. I recently had one uh, in Korean and in, uh, in Chinese and in French and many other Russian and so forth. So I've been very interested in spreading the word about all the different types of puzzles and their history. And in each of the books, I put some amount of history about each puzzle. Where, where did it come from? What's the idea behind it? And if there's mathematics associated with it, to describe that. Uh, so through my books, I have uh, really reached a lot of people in puzzles. And then, of course, with television uh, as well. I've done a number, quite a number of television programs where they've come to, the, to my museum and taped them for uh, hobby shows or Discovery Channel or uh, other things. And I've appeared on a few talk shows as well to s sort of spread the word. But that's one of the things that I'm proud of is that during the time of the puzzle parties and the books, the number of puzzles that are out there that are available has increased substantially. And I, I like to think that maybe I've had a small part in that. What is the Slocum Puzzle Foundation? You formed that in, in 93, I think it was. Yes. That was an umbrella as an umbrella organization that uh, has published books that I couldn't find uh, an, uh, another publisher for. Publishers tend to want to have to publish books that are broadly based. And uh, sometimes my books, like the book on the 15 puzzle, 
when I uh, finished that research, I basically didn't even try to find a publisher because they don't like books about uh, that are exclusively about one puzzle, and they don't look like books that are exclusively about history. They like a broad brush about puzzles because they have more readers and more buyers. So I published it myself, and then it was quite successful, and the reviews were quite good. So uh, then Barnes & Noble published a version of it also with the puzzle in it as a kit in uh, in the Barnes & Noble stores. And uh, so through all of that, I think, has been my my uh, so, some success in, in spreading the word about these puzzles. A moment ago, you said that most of your collection is at the Lilly Library. Does that mean you're still actively collecting? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's still on your wish list? Well, basically what I'm trying to do now is to get world-class puzzles that should be in the Lilly Library. And, for example, there's a Spanish sculptor. His name is Baracal, who died a few years ago. And he made sculptural art uh, with puzzles that came apart into 25, 50, or 100 different pieces. They're beautiful pieces of art. But they were very expensive when they first came out. Some of them were $5,000 or more each. And I just couldn't afford. If I had bought them, there's a lot of other things that I wanted. I couldn't abort, uh, buy like antique puzzles. So I didn't uh, buy those. And uh, during the last three years now, we've been able to, with the help of the Lily, uh, we've been able to buy the major, uh, the best puzzle-related uh, sculptors by Baracal. And now the Lily has a very fine collection of them. So that's been my emphasis, is to sort of plug the holes in my collection that are there due to one factor or another. <laughs> so the museum behind your house is not full anymore? I mean, there, there's room for more of your own collection as well? Well, what I have done is to give some of the very best puzzles to the Lily right at the beginning. So they have a world-class collection. But in some cases, I have a second uh, version of the puzzle, like, for example, puzzles, uh, the, the Tangram puzzles from China. I have ivory versions of that in ivory boxes that's, uh, that's intricately carved. And I even have books with ivory covers from China. Well, I happen to have two really beautiful uh, sets of tangrams and two beautiful books with ivory covers. So one is in my uh, museum and one is here. And that's true in general. Uh, I still have all of my display cases uh, that are uh, that have my nicest puzzles, they're all still full. So if you walk into the room, you'd think it's all there. But if you open the drawers or look in the boxes, they're empty. <laughs> so I, during uh, the last six years, I've uh, transferred 30,000 of my total of 35,000. So I have in the order of 5,000 left. Some of them are very, very nice, uh, world-class museum quality, but they are Another version of a puzzle lock, for example, some of those very expensive and very intricate, or ivory puzzles and so forth. So the the best of my collection is here, but 
the second best is still populates the display cases in in my house. I have a lot of visitors that come to my house, so <laughs> even though it's not open to the public, I still have a lot of of uh, scholars and and uh, other visitors. And there's still a few things on your wish list, and a few things maybe you couldn't walk by in a shop. Oh yes, I love to go into antique shops. I did almost all of my collecting of antiques before eBay. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, and I still have a love of going into antique shops. And uh, uh, even I, on this trip, I was in Pennsylvania, and I went to Adamstown and went through the antique shops there. And I didn't actually end up buying anything, but I saw they still have a fair number of uh, very nice antique puzzles. Jerry Slocum, thank you so much for talking with us today. We've been speaking with Jerry Slocum, mechanical puzzle expert, author, and collector whose 30,000-item collection, most of it anyway, is now housed at Indiana University's Lilly Library, where any visitor can stroll into the aptly named Slocum Room and take a look at some of those on display, including the Coke bottle with the wooden arrow, a 15 puzzle, and several tangrams. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll listen to a little more of Hoosier Hoagie Carmichael as we say goodnight. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening. I'm Gina Asher. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.